And um, we just pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from James, chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. I'll be reading from the ESV. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmers wait for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who speak in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be a yes, and your no be a no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of God. So we've been in um, a series through the book of James. We're in chapter 5. This is the final chapter of this letter that James writes to the early church. Uh, the early church uh, has been going through a lot. Uh, they've been suffering. Uh, they've been enduring uh, different trials and ordeals. And so James, as a pastor, he writes to them to encourage them and to teach them, sometimes even to correct them. And, you know, this passage that we just read this morning, uh, it's, it's about patience. And you, you guys have heard the saying, patience is a virtue, right? Patience is a virtue. You've heard that saying before. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about the time that we live in, right? 2023. And I actually believe that though we might say patience is a virtue, impatience is the real virtue, of our world, right? Not patience, but impatience is the virtue that our world strives for. I want you to think about it. How else to explain that people will wait outside, whether it's cold or hot, whether it's the crack of dawn or sometimes from the night before, just for the latest gadget, right? Which they could get delivered to them maybe a week later if they just waited. They have to have it. They need it now. It's important to them. Uh, you know, ever since Amazon in introduced Prime shipping, uh, I, I'm really bad with this. Uh, we don't want to wait five to seven days anymore to get something. We, we want it now. <laughs> or we want it tomorrow at latest with uh, one-click shopping. And um, I don't know if you guys even remember this time, but before the advent of smartphones... Today's news, which you can just pull up very conveniently if you just Google you know, today's news or go to SMH online, um, you actually had to wait a whole day to find out what happened yesterday. Do you guys remember that time where you would buy the newspaper and the headline would actually not be about what happened that day, but about what happened the day before? And now we want our eyeballs to absorb instant access 
to today's news, especially if something's controversial or out of the ordinary. There are so many articles and, and news uh, you know, outlets that will give us that information. You know, I, I really think that our world prizes impatience as a virtue, and here's what's scary. I think if we as a culture all learned delayed gratification, I think we'd go into a recession. Because that's the kind of world that we live in right now. Impatience is a real virtue that our world upholds. It's the air that we breathe. Our lives are busy and demanding. And we live in this world of impatience. So we'll do anything and everything that we can to uphold that, to address that in some way. So today, as we continue to understand what real Christian faith is, uh, James emphasizes the essential importance of patience. Not just as a virtue that we try to strive for in life. It's not just something that you say to yourself as a Christian, I should be more patient. I can see that these areas of my life, I'm very impatient. But Christian patience, according to James, is a hopeful, intentional kind of waiting. Last week, we saw that James was addressing the rich, and not just any rich, but the wicked rich, those who were oppressing and cheating the poor. And now James transitions from addressing these, this wicked rich, these people outside of the covenant community, he transitions back to speaking to the community, God's people. And he, un- he understands that some of them are certainly suffering. If you remember James chapter 1, we're coming full circle from that. In James chapter 1, James talks about suffering. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So they're facing trials. Some of them are suffering. And today, James says, hey, be patient. Full circle. And every single one of us this morning, every single one of us this morning is facing some kind of trial or suffering. Maybe it's just a run-of-the-mill garden variety kind of suffering, you know, as you go through the stresses of each day. Or maybe it's a, you know, a more intense kind of suffering. Maybe it's an oppressive suffering. Maybe it's an injustice that you're facing. And it's really heavy. Every single one of us this morning is facing a trial or suffering to some degree. And this morning, James calls for us to pause And to be patient in that suffering. Because that's what it means to have authentic faith. How do we even begin to do that? Sounds easy to say, but much harder to do in practice. Well, James gives us three really basic and clear commands in this text. Three commands. Verse 7, he says, be patient. Verse 9, he says, do not grumble. And verse 12, he says, do not swear. And if you just look at those uh, three commands, I think you can see that in the first two commands... There is a connection. You can see how they would be connected. You know, when you're impatient, that often leads to grumbling. But then the third seems a bit odd. Like, why is that there? Do not swear. You know, maybe it's just an extra un- unrelated bit of proverbial wisdom. But there is a connection, which I think we'll see. So number one, be patient. Really simple. Be patient, verse 7. You probably heard that from your friends or maybe your spouse. (laughs) Or maybe you tell that to your kids a lot. 
But this is not just good advice that James is giving. It's not just a generic exercise in mindfulness, right, or letting go, or just some common sense advice to, hey, just accept things in life. Just accept that that's the way it is. Look, look at the rest of verse 7. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So remember, James is, is addressing the church here, Christians, part of the covenant community, and they're waiting with hope for the return of Jesus. And he gives an example about a farmer. He says, you know, just like the farmer, he waits for the early rain, which would be around October, November, uh, in the ancient Near East, and then for the later rain, uh, which would be around March, April. And the result is he's waiting for that later rain for a precious harvest to occur. And James says that's how we should wait, with hope. Just like the farmer who waits in his season for the rain to fall upon the earth and the harvest produces an, uh, an increase, a growth, James says, so you should wait like that too. And I think many of us have heard this before, right? Maybe we've listened to sermons before about Jesus' return and you've heard the preacher say to you, hey, just, just wait for that time. Wait until the day that Jesus comes back. And that's how you should be patient. Tell yourself to be patient. Tell your kids to be patient. But it doesn't click. doesn't register. Because if we're honest, this motivation to be patient until the coming of the Lord, it's really hard for that to register in, in just day-to-day -day life, especially when you're having a hard time, when you're going through suffering. And I think part of the reason that the return of Christ makes little to no difference in our lives is that we don't always actually believe it's going to happen. So here's a question for you this morning. Do you actually believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is coming back? Do you believe that there will be an actual moment, maybe now, or maybe not right now, but maybe tomorrow in our lifetime, or maybe not, maybe in your children's lifetime, but there'll be an actual moment where real human beings are just going about their day at work, maybe on a holiday, and they'll look up to the sky as the earth shakes, Clouds separate and Christ descends from heaven. And James is reminding us as surely as the rain comes in due time, it'll happen. It'll happen whether you believe it or not. I think that's one of the reasons why we don't really feel changed or moved by this reality of Christ's return. But uh, another reason I think that Christ's return makes uh, little to no difference in our lives is because it seems so far away. I remember when I was a kid, my parents would say to me, um, you know, next year we're going on a holiday to the Gold Coast. And it would be like this massive trip in the distance, one year away. It, it, honestly, in primary school years, it felt like 50 years away. And it would just be so big, so far away. But now... As an adult, if I'm thinking of a holiday next year, a big trip, when do you need to start planning? You need to start planning right now. Right now. Because it's going to be here before you know it. The promise of the coming of the Lord, it can feel to us a bit like that. 
like we're spiritual children. Oh, that's so far away. When do we ever even get there? And the years might feel long at a glance. But the older you get, right, the more you realize really how quickly those years go by. Right, the, the, the days, the weeks, the months, they go by so quickly. And when we have something of God's perspective on time, we realize, no, this is not far off. And that's what James reminds us of. This ought to motivate your patience in the present and your vision for the future. But what does that look like for us practically? Well, James gives us two very practical examples, real-life examples, one of the prophets and one of Job in verses 10 to 11. That's what he says. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So first he talks about the prophets. The prophets were men who were sent by God to speak to his people. So they spoke in the name of God. And they were often doing the right thing. They were often the only ones doing the right thing and saying the right thing, and they still suffered. They were still persecuted, but they were steadfast. They were patient. They kept going. And in the same vein, James talks about this guy called Job. If you don't know who Job was, Job was, uh, the Bible calls him a righteous man, right? He was a godly man who had great wealth, amazing family, but he lost all of that. He loses his family, his loved ones. He, he gets really sick on the verge of death, loses all of his property, his finances, loses everything. And he keeps hoping in God. He keeps waiting on God, believing that God had not forsaken him. And so he moves towards God, not away from God. To be patient means to live with hope for the return of Jesus, even in suffering. It means to move towards God and not away from God like Job. It means to remember that our short-term futures and even our ultimate futures are secure in Christ. So that's the first thing that James tells us to do. He tells us to be patient, but secondly, he says, do not grumble. And like I said, I think these are connected because when you're impatient, what are you going to do? You're going to grumble. So verse 9, James says, do not grumble. And so if the first command to be patient, that was a kind of vertical patience that James was talking about between, between you and God. Wait for the return of Jesus. The second command to not grumble is kind of a horizontal patience that we have towards each other. Because notice what James says. He doesn't say, do not grumble against those who are oppressing you. He doesn't say, do not grumble against those who are really difficult and who might be giving you a hard time. He's writing this letter to the church and he says, do not grumble against one another. That's what's happening in James's time. The Christians in the church are suffering. And it wasn't the other Christians in the covenant community who were causing the suffering. It was often these, you know, external oppressors, the wicked rich, suing them in court. There's people outside. It was things outside, the pressures of life. And yet, they're grumbling against each other. How does that happen? Well, I think that's what happens to us too, right? What happens when you get beat down by a really rough day at work, when you've had 
a little sleep and you're just kind of frayed around the edges, who do you take it out on? Often we take it out on the people who are right next to us. The people closest to us, even though they're not responsible for our suffering, even though they're not responsible for our feeling frayed around the edges, that's what we do. We take it out on those who are closest to us, on those around us. Maybe your spouse, maybe your kids, maybe your parents, maybe your friend. Every single one of us has said at one time or another, why did I just treat my, my wife like that? She didn't do anything to me. Why, why, did I, why did I explode at my kids? Oh, look, it's, it's mom calling again. <laughs> and you pick up the phone. And your voice is just tinged with an edge of impatience. And they're taking too long and you lash out at them. And why did I just do that? Why did I just put down my friend or sibling? They're not the ones who are giving me that bad day or the bad week. But they're there. And as you suffer, you grumble. That's what happens. And I know that people can sin against us in, in really big ways. People can hurt us in really big ways, and I want to make light of that. But I want to ask you for a moment, hey, let's just be honest and candid about our own hearts. Not everything you have grumbled about in the last week or in the last month has been a life-altering offense, has it? More often than not, it's the other areas of your life, stresses at work, bad circumstances from other people. Maybe you're going through some health issues. These are the things that cause you to feel offense at those around you. And when you grumble, sure, maybe sometimes people can be a bit insensitive. But really, if you're candid about your own heart, what you've grumbled about hasn't been some kind of life-altering offense. See, what grumbling reveals is what's really going on inside. What grumbling reveals is that we're not handling our suffering, our trials, very well. So what's the alternative then? Do we just pull up our bootstraps and we just suffer well? Just try harder? Do we just stop grumbling and just, you know, just keep on keeping on? <laughs> no. Look at James's rationale for not grumbling in verse 9. He says, Do not grumble so that you may not be judged. The judge is standing at the door. That sounds scary, but let me try to unpack this for you. James says, God is the judge at the door. James says, The judge hears you. As a kid, um, when my parents would put me to bed earlier than I wanted to, when I wanted to eat more snacks and they told me to just go to bed, I would grumble. I would grumble that I didn't get to eat more candy, that I didn't get to uh, watch more TV, and they'd send me off and they'd say, all right, no more complaining, no more grumbling, no more talking. And they'd get me up to my room, they'd close the door, and of course, as soon as, it, as they close the door, what do you do? You start complaining, you start grumbling, but your parents have some kind of supersonic hearing. And even though they're like five meters outside the door, they can still hear you on the other side. And they say, 
I can still hear you. <laughs> Stop it. Stop grumbling. Go to bed. You know, when you grumble, when you speak harshly to your spouse, when you lash out at your parents, when you maybe speak too quickly and insensitively to a friend who's just trying to listen, what it really means is you're not suffering very well. You're going through something, you're not handling it well. And you're grumbling. Makes sense. And what James says is, it's actually because you've forgotten who God is in your suffering. You've forgotten that He's a judge. You've forgotten that He's a judge who hears the way that we speak to each other, that we grumble about each other. But ultimately what James is saying is that you've forgotten that this judge didn't judge us when we deserved it, when we deserved to be judged. He judged His Son in our place. And so what James is saying is when you're grumbling, when you're offended, when you're not suffering well, you've forgotten the grace of the gospel. And God cares more about that deeper heart issue than the fact that you're just grumbling. God is a judge who stands at the door. He hears you. God is a judge who has judged his own son in your place so that you might suffer differently not the same as everyone else who suffers and goes through a hard time, but differently. That you would suffer as a Christian, not just pushing through or getting over it, but remembering God's grace, hoping God's grace, expecting God's grace. So there's a question for you to consider. Maybe you're going through something tough right now, and it's hard to be patient, it's hard to wait. Have you forgotten who God is in all of that. Have you forgotten God's grace in the gospel? That he's a judge, yes, but he hasn't judged you according to what you deserve. He judged his son in your place. So we just looked at the first two commands. Uh, be patient and do not grumble. And finally, the third one, do not swear in verse 12. So you can understand that suffering leads to impatience and suffering leads to grumbling how does suffering lead to swearing? Uh, well, I just want to say here that when James says swearing, as you can see from the context of verse 12, he's not talking about some kind of cussing. Like he's not saying, hey, stop saying bad words. He's saying, stop swearing oaths. Don't swear oaths, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. And it's not that every single kind of oath is wrong. God himself, he swears oaths in the Old Testament. If you remember, he swore an oath to Abraham several times. Uh, Paul takes an oath several times in the New Testament, many of his epistles. He says, as God is my witness. Jesus, even in his trial in Matthew 26, he testifies under oath. This is not about not saying the words that constitute an oath. This is about integrity. Because we live in a day when words are cheap, they're everywhere, and they're devalued. Even the, the oath that you take in a court of law can be fudged, can be, you know, loopholed. The oath that you take in marriage vows can be broken. And I'm sure you guys know instances of that having happened. We live in a world where oaths are 
honestly just quite cheap. Our words are really cheap. But God invented words. He, com- he communicates to us by words. It's uh, an extension of who he is. If you remember in John 1, it says the word became flesh. And so to reflect who God is, God wants us to say what we mean and to mean what we say. We cu- with, without covering things up in our suffering, without grumbling in our suffering, those are the ways that we deflect what's really going on inside. And I think we're masters at that in this day and age. Instinctually, when someone asks you, how are you doing? How was your week? 99.9% of the time, yeah, this is going to be good. Okay. All of us are facing some kind of suffering, some kind of trial. I don't mean to be, you know, uh, cynical, but that's the reality of the world that we live in. We don't deflect. We wait in hope for the one who's coming again. If we say that we're disciples, and remember this is the point of James, if you say that you have faith, then it has to show. It has to show in your life. It doesn't matter how much you say that you have faith, how much you serve in church, or how much you don't serve in church. If you say that you have faith in Jesus Christ, and your life does not show it, then you don't have faith. You have a dead faith. If we say that we're disciples, if we say that we follow Jesus, we say what we mean and we mean what we say. You be vulnerable with your weaknesses because we all have them. You confess the times when discipleship is just honestly hard. You cry out to God for mercy and help and you follow Jesus wherever he's leading you. There's no in-between. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Say what you mean and mean what you say. I want to end with one point of application. What does it mean for you this morning to be patient in the season of life that you're in? And quite simply, it's this. Uh, We see it in verse 8. It means to establish your heart in God's purpose, to establish your heart in God's purpose. Look at verse 8 with me. James says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So James says, establish your hearts. So the purpose of this exhortation is not for you to go home today and just write, hey, I need to be more patient on your vision board or just tell yourself that again and again without changing. James says, establish your hearts. It's not passivity. You have to to establish your heart. It takes work. You have to set your heart to be patient. You have to remind yourself and your heart of what is true. And here's the reality. I think when we hear about being patient, many of us think of patience as just this passively kind of bearing with life's inconveniences or suffering. But here's the thing. You have to do that whether you like it or not. You have to do that whether you tell yourself to be patient or not. 
when you're standing in line at a Coles or Woolworths and there are five people in front of you and you think to yourself, why don't they hire more workers here? Why don't they install more self-checkout machines here? I've got to wait for five people. I guess I'll just catch up on my emails, reply to some messages, maybe I'll pull up some articles. That's not patience. You have to bear with that whether you like it or not. Whether you, have, whether you want to wait or not, you have to bear with that. That's not patience. That's not what James is calling us to do. He's not calling us to be passive and just bear life's inconveniences. He calls for us to establish our hearts in God's purpose. Patience is a state of heart. That's why James says establish your heart. You have to set your heart to an attitude of patience. But what do you establish your heart in specifically? Well, the purposes of God. Where do I get that? Well, verse 11 says this, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. None of you guys just experiences life. None of you just wakes up tomorrow and gets through the week all the way till Friday and just experience your life. All of us interpret our experiences. And as Christians, we're meant to interpret the experience of suffering. Not that it feels good to suffer, or that there'll just be no suffering in heaven, but that God has a purpose specifically in your suffering. It's when you actually come to believe that there is no purpose in your suffering, that patience is impossible. God, there is, I, I, I can't fathom, I cannot understand, and not only that, but there is no reason, there is no rhyme or reason as to why this is happening right now. That's when you cannot be patient. God has a purpose, and it's not that He's just decided one day for some bad things to, to just happen to you, to whip you into shape, to teach you a lesson. It's not to toughen you up, right? To leave you in an oven of suffering, past the timer. What does verse 11 say? Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, right? That example of patience. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What's God's purpose? It's that you would see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's it. That's His purpose in your suffering. You might feel like God is done with you when you're in that heat, but He's not. God is not done with you. God has a purpose in your suffering so that you would see how He is compassionate and merciful. And Friends, the hardest thing that God may be calling to you uh, this morning is to wait. It's to wait with something. It's to be patient about something. And all of your neurons are firing off. All of your impulses are saying, no, I don't want to. That's too hard. I'm tired. I'm jaded. I'm discouraged. God has a purpose in the waiting. God has a purpose in this season that you're going through right now 
It's that you would see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. When you're at your wit's end and you have no strength and you're questioning why is this happening to me right now, God has a purpose in the waiting. It's that you and I would see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. He demonstrated this when he sent his only son to die on the cross for impatient, rebellious people. Right? He sent his only son to die in their place so that these people could be forgiven and redeemed. And he's going to show it again um, when he comes back to make everything new. God's got a purpose in the waiting so that you and I would see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, that he cares about you, that he sees you, that he even empathizes with what you're going through, and that even when you don't have anything to give, he has mercy, he has grace. That's the lens through which you must look ahead. Even when you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, which James has said to us already, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, and yet we can look through this lens. God's purpose is that we would see how he's compassionate and merciful. And when you, when you do that in troubled times, you'll become a person of unexplainable, uh, uncanny patience. You'll become a person of great hope. And that's what I want for you guys. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for this church. So let's pray. Father, uh, there are many things that uh, really try to wire within us uh, this urge to be impatient and to live like that, to thrive off that. But the reality is um, that kind of attitude, uh, it damages us. It damages the people around us. A heart of impatience is not what you desire to see in your people. You want us to be patient. You want us to become patient. And so, even as we wrestle with impatience in our lives, Lord, I pray that above all, you would help us to see very clearly, uh, even as we reflect on the past and, and the present and the future, that your purpose for us is that we would see just how compassionate and how merciful you are. That we would see how much you care, how much you love us, how willing you are to help us, how able you are to extend to us mercy and grace in our time of need. I pray that would change us, that would do something to our hearts. I pray that it would make us people who are supernaturally patient and different to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.